Ben, good morning and good to see you all. Go ahead and have a seat. If you missed my Facebook post the other day, then you may not know that our album is now available for download on Amazon.com or iTunes. So if you're like me, you like to go for a walk and listen to the music on your phone or that kind of thing or your iPod, you can do that now. So that's exciting. Um, if you missed my Facebook post, then you're not on Facebook or you're not my friend on Facebook. And if you're not my friend on Facebook, what's that all about? Good enough to be your pastor, but not your friend on Facebook. Okay. I've lost focus here. All right. Our radio ministry people demanded it. Well, we only have one radio ministry person, and he didn't actually demand it. He just asked me to do it, and I thought about it, and I thought, why leave them hanging? If you went home and read Jonah 3 and 4 on Sunday, as I asked you to, let's just go ahead and finish it while we're here, and then we'll get back, Lord willing, that's my heart, not going to hop to another book. Um, we'll get back to Mark. We're kind of hanging there in the last week of Jesus' life kind of thing. We will get back to that, but we figure while we're here, let's go ahead and wrap up this great drama. And like any good drama, it consists of two acts, right? Act 1, chapters 1 and 2, we see Jonah forsaking his mission. Acts 3 and Acts 2, which is uh, Jonah 3 and 4, we see him fulfilling his mission. You may remember if you were here last week, or if you were not, then you know the story. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh and to warn um, the Ninevites of God's coming judgment against their wickedness. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it represented everything that Jonah hated. And not just Jonah, most of the prophets, the people that lived around Assyria, at the time. He wanted them slaughtered, not saved. He wanted them destroyed, not delivered. So what does he do? We saw he ran as fast as he could in the opposite direction to a seaside town called Tarshish, where he jumped aboard a boat hoping to sail outside of God's will. And so it's incredibly irrational, right, for a prophet of God to think that he could somehow go far away enough where God wouldn't be there to escape God. But as we mentioned last week, it's kind of the same exact thing as a believer when God tells us to do something and we don't do it and act like he doesn't know or he's not looking and he's not there and watching us disobey him. It's the same exact thing. One of the things that's troubling about Jonah is he has a sort of an understanding about God that's right, but a behavior pattern that doesn't exactly coincide. Maybe you know someone a little bit like that personally in your own life. I'm not talking about someone sitting next to you. And that's what Jonah is. But his rebellion, um, of course, God did not allow that, uh, did not allow him to escape the calling that God had placed on his life. He just made him retake the class. I'm God and you're not 101 advanced placement. And Jonah's got to go through that. And so what happens? He gets aboard this boat. There's this huge storm, and there's these sailors on the boat. They somehow recognize that this storm is supernatural in nature because they're all crying out to God. In fact, they're trying to figure out whose fault it is. Who is God mad at? And they implore Jonah to be a part of the prayer. Jonah didn't want to pray. He was trying to get away from God. So they cast lots to see whose God was mad at who. And the lot fell on Jonah, and then Jonah kind of confessed to them what was going on. And he told them, hey, you're going to have to throw me overboard. 
And they tried as best as they could, the sailors did, to do that, to avoid that, to not have to throw Jonah overboard, but there was no choice. They had to throw him overboard as soon as they did. The sea was calm, just like that. And those sailors became believers in Jehovah, in God. Awesome scene. But then we're told at the end of chapter 2 that a great fish came and swallowed Jonah up, and he was there three days and three nights. Three days and three nights before it would seem that he cried out to God, before he began to pray, despite the fact that, as we said last time, inside the belly of that great fish, the conditions, I mean, it would have been stifling heat, total darkness, slimy tissue all around, all of those kinds of things, those gastric juices from the fish, like standing next to a frying pan and getting hit by those sparks constantly. That would have been happening. And finally, there at the end of chapter 2, Jonah declares, salvation is of the Lord. In other words, it's not my call. It's my calling, but it's not my call to decide who gets saved and who doesn't. That's your decision. And so I need to obey what you've asked me to do. And so the very last verse says, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The whole story to some is just not believable. It's hard to understand. It's hard to reconcile the elements of it. It seems well, like a fantasy kind of thing, a mythological kind of story. And yet, as we spent the time talking about last week, the Lord Jesus referred to it in his teaching. He used it as an illustration of his literal death, burial, and resurrection, three days and three nights. So there's no way that the Lord Jesus is um, illustrating and comparing his death, burial, and resurrection to something that is a myth. Actually, Jesus refers to the story of Jonah a couple different ways, and I'll reference that this morning as well. You know, there were even some people who were here last week, I suppose, that are believers in Christ that walked out of here thinking maybe the story is true after all, that didn't before they got here. And one of the reasons why that is, it's not because of anything convincing I said, it's because if you're a believer in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you recognize the penmanship of the Holy Spirit. When you really dig in and you really read your Bible, in any book of the Bible, you walk away going, that's the same God, the same God that I know right there. And we're going to see that God, he's on display. His heart is fully on display for us this morning in these two chapters, where apparently he has Jonah's attention now as we dive into chapter 3. He's going to once again instruct him in what he's supposed to do, go to Nineveh, Take two, chapter three, verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. And one of the things always that appeals to me when I see this verse is that it is the second time. So thankful that we have a God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. And I won't make you stand if you know of a God who is of hundreds and thousands of chances. But um, if you're like me, then you have that testimony um, concerning our God. He still chooses to use us despite our rebellion, despite the rebellion that he knew that we would do. You don't take God by surprise when you disobey him. He already knew that ahead of time. So don't be hesitant in coming back to him. Because you could be here this morning, you know, and you could be thinking, you know, you've been distant from God. Maybe some of you, it's been years since you've been consistent in fellowship in a church, and you're just now back. 
And maybe like Jonah, you have some kind of great moral failure in your background and you're wondering, will he have me again? Will he allow me to represent him again? Will I have that same kind of intimacy that I had with him back in that day? And we have that answer here because we saw Jonah's rebellion as hardcore as it gets. And here God employs him for the work of the ministry once again. And so the proper response, if you're in that spot, is just like Jonah's. You know, if you're here this morning and God's saying, yes, I want you back, then the response is immediate. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. It's pretty spectacular because here's a city that we know historians have chronicled that this people, the Assyrian people of this time were a brutal people. They're well known in history. Nineveh is too. Six to eight hundred thousand people and the capital of a world predominant empire that was savage and barbarous. However, up until about the mid-19th century, critical scholars said that the city of Nineveh didn't even exist because they had found no evidence that the city of Nineveh ever existed. And so scholars use that as a reason to once again attack the Bible until a few excavators and some archaeologists were there, you know, like 150 years ago or so, digging, and they found the city. You can go there today, and you can see the ruins. And it's almost like God does that on purpose. It's almost like he allows some things to be discovered in their time just so the skeptics can question God and then he can reveal once again that he's always right. And sooner or later, science, archaeology, whatever branch of study you're into will verify and validate that the word of God is true, that the city was big, that it was wicked. But God had chosen to pronounce this judgment against Nineveh for the same reasons he had chosen to judge other cities, because of their sin, because of their sexual immorality, their drunkenness, but again, mostly because of their cruelty and their brutality. And that's why it was so hard for Jonah to do what he was about to do next. Verse 4, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So this was his well-constructed, well-thought-out, passionate, concerned message for the lost, right? 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And overthrown means destruction. So it's kind of like saying 40 days and you're all dead. I mean, did he practice that in the bathroom mirror at home? 40 days, you're all dead, just telling you. <laughs> 40 days and you're all dead. That's it. Jonah is not exactly the poster child for joy-filled obedience, okay? He's got God's message, but not really the heart behind the message, like the child who the mother scolds and disciplines and sort of gives the child a timeout. He says, Mom, I'm obeying on the outside, but not on the inside. And that's Jonah. Obedient on the outside, but not so much on the inside. There's no love in this message. There's no grace there's no compassion, and most of all, there's no hope in the message. And the reason why there's no hope is because Jonah didn't want them to be saved. He wanted them to be destroyed. And so he limits this 
message. I'm sure there was a Q&A of sorts that they found out some information, but we can tell as we go through that he didn't tell them very much. Eight words. That's what he prepped for them. Some of you are thinking, boy, it would be nice if you would wrap up in eight words or less this morning. <laughs> Not so much. How's <laughs> that going to happen? Eight words. I'm no master communicator like Jonah, apparently. Of course, the cool thing about that, though, is what that encourages you and me as called by God to spread the good news is the message doesn't have to be elaborate, right? Full of convincing and sound doctrinal and theological kind of arguments. The message just has to be empowered by God. And the message was empowered by God because look at what happens in verse 5. Not only Jonah's worst nightmare, but one of the greatest revivals and awakening stories in the history of the entire world. It says, verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God. Two things to note on that. Number one is it says they believed God, not they believe in God. There's a difference. Most people in this country believe in God, but they don't believe God. If you believe God, then you do what he says because you believe him that he knows what he's talking about as it relates to everything. And so you entrust that and you implement it into your life. That's what the Ninevites did. The other thing that's interesting about this is it's not like a few people believed or a remnant. The Bible's specific when a remnant believes or a small amount believes. It would seem here that the people of Nineveh believed. Every single one of them. Some six to 800,000 people. And so as a result, we're told that they there, middle of verse 5, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast herd nor flock, taste anything, do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now this is interesting, and we'll see in a minute that I'm telling you, we can tell that Jonah didn't tell them much, that he probably just went around and said, 40 days, you're all dead. And yet, instinctively, these folks who were not reading their Bibles and walking with God and just sort of had backslid, instinctively these people knew in their hearts that they were evil, that they were violent. Right? That's an instinctive thing because we have a conscience. Even unbelievers do. And so he brings this message and they know right away, God's right about this, that people are sinners. If they're honest, they know right away. See, because you're going to see in verse 9 that they don't know the full message. It's pretty clear. Look what it says. And this is the king. He's saying, look, nobody eat anything, not even beasts, not even water, for who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is remarkable because instead of rejecting or more likely even killing, persecuting in some way, Jonah, they are all repenting from the greatest, it said, 
all the way down to the least of them, from the king on his throne, all the way down to the lowliest peasant that there was in Nineveh. They all believed and they all turned from their evil ways, despite the fact they had absolutely no assurance of what would happen if they repented. No promise at all of what would happen if they did indeed repent. That is so different from the generation that you and I live in today. If this generation found out they had 40 days until God's judgment, and they actually believed it, they'd be living it up. They'd be looting and rioting, and you and I both know it. Despite the fact they have every assurance of what happens if they repent and come to Christ. They have every promise of what happens if they repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. This generation of Ninevites has no guarantees. Who can tell, the king says. And yet they turn from their sin anyway. That's why Jesus, when he was speaking to the religious leaders in the book of Matthew, said this. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation, the one he was ministering to. They will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah someone who hated them. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here, speaking and referring to himself. The religious leaders refuse to repent at the preaching, not of a mere man, but of the Son of God and someone who loved them very, very much. And so what does he do here? He contrasts the two. The men in Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment against you because they repent they repented at the preaching of Jonah and at that with no assurance at all whatsoever he contrasts the two with that story it's a story of course we know that the scholars of the day the religious leaders of the day would have been totally familiar with and once again this is my point concerning anyone who would say that this is myth or allegory take it up with the Sanhedrin because none of them argued the point. None of them said, uh, Rabbi, that's just an allegory. That's just a parable, that thing of Jonah. That's not a real story. None of them did that. They all knew what Jesus was saying, and they knew that the story was real. By the way, nobody took exception with Jonah among the Ninevites either. They all bought the story as well. Because Jesus said it another place in Luke. He said that Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. It would seem that somehow, and we don't know how, that Jonah's arrival went viral. And it had already got there to Nineveh before he arrived. That, and of course, suppose Jonah at this point, just a couple days after being in the fish, he probably looked kind of strange. What does a vomited man look like anyway? <laughs> Bible teachers say that um, those gastric juices probably bleached his skin white as snow. He probably lost all of his hair. He's looking like an alien or something. He comes on the scene. He says, repent. And about that point, I'm repenting. <laughs> we might even say that his bleaching helped his preaching, right? Sorry. But you know, seriously, here's part of the problem with us as we hold ourselves back from being evangelists for God, as being spokespeople, 
as being the mouthpiece for God, we think we have to have it totally together. We think we have to look the part, speak the part, and act the part. And maybe the exact opposite is true. That in reality, there are a lot of people out there who think that salvation is untouchable for them. And really what they want to know is how an average, everyday person like you and me, with a track record full of sin, can have a personal relationship with God, can repent and believe on Him, and that God will accept them. And if you need any example in history of how God could do that with the type of people that you would think He wouldn't do that with, just look at verse 10. Then God saw their works. The people of Nineveh, of all people, the Assyrian people that would go down in history among historians as the most brutal, predominant world power ever. God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And that's not just three points and a sermon and something for us to rejoice in. It really is the heart of God. God has a great love for sinners. God's heart for sinners is the message of the Bible. He loves people. He loves them. He loves the wicked. The Bible says he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. I'm convinced he doesn't like to judge. He likes to save. He will judge his righteous, just nature requires it. But he doesn't like to judge. He'd prefer not to. He'd prefer to save, even the Ninevites. And that's what he does here. Now, if that was it, if that's all God wanted to accomplish here or communicate to us, then that would be the end. And the story would be over. God's happy. The Ninevites are happy. The beasts of the field are happy. Everybody's happy except one person. And so God now has got to work to save Jonah, not in a salvation sense, but he's got to work to save Jonah from himself. Because if you flip the page, so to speak, to verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. <laughs> Greatest revival in the history of the world, he's bummed. This is confusing because usually the preacher is pleased when the congregation repents. This is the dream of every missionary. This is the dream of every evangelist, every child of God that has ever um, walked amidst wickedness in the history of the world. To be able to see this, that a city, that a people, an entire city, an entire people would turn this quickly and this completely, to even just to see that. Can you imagine? To see the whole city of Capitola, way smaller than Nineveh. To see the whole city of Capitola repent and turn to God. Could you imagine just seeing that? Let alone being the instrument in God's hands to bring that work about. And yet, Jonah's angry. And you know why? 
because he didn't want to be successful. He didn't want it to work out. That's why he ran in the first place. So, verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. And when Jonah says that God is a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, he does not mean it as a compliment. He means it as a complaint. Lord, I knew you would do this. You're such a victim of your nature. It's kind of like what he's saying here. It's fascinating, even in his frustration, that Jonah is testifying the same way he was last week. I want to reiterate this one more time. That Jonah is testifying that the God of the Old Testament is the same God that you and I worship from the New Testament. If you're new to kind of the church scene and learning the Bible, it takes some time to kind of ramp up and you, maybe you don't know this. I didn't early on too. You can kind of think maybe that the God of the Old Testament is just a little bit testy. Just a little bit always on edge waiting for someone to like get out of line so he could just kill him right on the spot. And we like the God of the New Testament. He's much more merciful and kind and he's gracious and he's patient with us. Or we think that he's the same God in the Old Testament and the New, but Jesus knows how to calm him down. He knows how to deal with him, so to speak. But that's not the case. And Jonah, even in his frustration, shows us, and time and time again, the children's ministry, they're studying a story that you probably aren't familiar with this morning that absolutely illustrates that very point of who God is, his character, his patience for the lost, the heart that he has for sinners. It's fantastic the way that God does things to demonstrate who he is. Jonah knew this about God. He said, this is what I thought. I knew this. I, I call it. I knew you would do this. Therefore, verse 3, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. <laughs> Some salt water got in his open wound or something. He's mad because a bunch of people got saved? Well, yes and no. I mean, remember, at the time Jonah's on the scene, there had been some prophets that had prophesied that there would be a coming judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel um, that was to be brought by the Assyrians. So Jonah's got to go back to the prophet hangout now and explain to all of his buddies how he was used by God to bring about this reconciliation here, which would make that possible in the future. The problem with that, whatever Jonah's frustrated about, is that was going to happen either way because God said it was going to happen. And God was going to bring judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel by the hand of the Assyrians either way. And he was going to do it either way because of their sin, just like he had done in the past when he had judged um, the nation of Israel. It's the reason why we as Christians living here in the United States, let's say something were to happen somewhere down the road where God were in some way, whether it's militarily or if it was economically, whatever the case may be, God were to use another nation to judge the United States of America. It certainly happened, couldn't it? It may already be happening in a sense today. And then do we stop sending missionaries to that nation? Do we stop then talking to those people about Jesus Christ because they're our enemies? No, I don't think so. 
And that's the exact same thing. Jonah was still going to have to go preach to the Ninevites. By the way, this is a different generation that he preaches to. This would be years later, down the road, that the Assyrians would come and be used by God to judge the northern kingdom of Israel. It's not these people. They're not the ones. These people here have repented. They've changed. And so God is showing them mercy. The same mercy that he was showing Jonah throughout all of Jonah's rebellion. He of all people should have understood that. And that's exactly why God's question in verse 4 is so fair. It says, verse 4, Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Now, we don't know inflection in the Bible. But don't you get the sense that it sounded like this? Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Of all people, considering your rebellious nature, the way you've acted, and what I delivered you from, is it right for you to be angry? And by the way, every child of God is going to hear this question every once in a while in that still, small, inaudible voice of God just cuts to the heart, doesn't it? Is it right for you to be angry, fill in the blank, to be bitter, to be upset, to be resentful, to be prideful, to be arrogant, whatever, considering who you are and considering what I've delivered you from. But Lord, he wronged me. She wronged me. I've been wronged. He knows that, and yet he still asks that question. He asks it of Jonah, and Jonah decides he's done talking to God for a little while. He's going to give him the silent treatment. And God's going to use, as we'll see in a minute, a series of circumstances to try and spark up the conversation again. But meanwhile, verse 5, it says, So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. So on the east side of the city, apparently there's a hill and there's some elevation so he could look out over the city, builds himself a little shelter. He wants to camp out and see what's going to happen. Maybe the supposed repentance was a facade and maybe and hopefully God will relent of his relenting and he'll go ahead and smoke them all anyway. You can just imagine, here's a prophet, right? He's supposed to be spreading glad tidings of good cheer. And he's camping out hoping that God goes ahead and follows through with what he had begun in the first place. He's got this scowl on his face. The Ninevite families, they have their family dinner and they go out for a walk. And the little boys and girls are holding their mommy and daddy's hands. And they're, they're like, mommy, daddy, why is that prophet so angry? <laughs> Because um, we're not dead yet. <laughs> not exactly demonstrating the heart of God here to the people of Nineveh. Should have been in there leading Bible studies and helping people to grow in their faith and understanding of God. By the way, this right here, I know by experience, is a perfect formula for being depressed. Just completely remove yourself from any and every one Shut off all contact to anyone that would encourage you or love on you. 
Focus entirely on yourself and nobody else and just sit by yourself and watch and analyze and think. Jonah's got a problem, but his problem is his own head, what's going on in his own mind, his own heart. Like someone once said, if you have Limburger cheese stuck in your mustache, the whole world's going to smell to you. He is totally self-absorbed. And that's the problem. He's totally focused on self. And that's what's making him miserable. And you go, well, what do you think could possibly make him happy, cheer him up? And sadly, it's the smallest of things. Verse 6, And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah, then it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. <laughs> the misery of everyone getting saved. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. See, so it wasn't that he was just this miserable person in general. It wasn't that he was incapable of joy. The problem is what he chooses to put his joy in and what he chooses not to. What he chooses to rejoice in and what he chooses not to rejoice in. And so God's trying to help him to overcome that here, to come to his senses. So this is why these are the circumstances I was talking about that God is going to put him through to get his head back on track. Verse 7 says, But as morning dawned the next day, God also prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished death for himself again and said it is better for me to die than to live it's fantastically amazing the insight into a human mind the selfishness of an individual person that they're capable of that here's God and he's trying to teach Jonah a lesson and Jonah's not getting it because he's more moved by the death of a plant than the salvation of 600,000 people. And that's why God asks this question again, just a little bit differently in verse nine. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Same question he asked in verse four, you get it? He contrasts the two. Jonah, does it make sense to you that you experienced more heartbreak more emotion with the death of a plant than the potential death and destruction of an entire generation of people, people as opposed to plants. Plants that are here today and gone tomorrow. People that have eternal souls. And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. But verse 10, the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night, and it perished. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, Jonah, you had this incredible attachment to a plant that you knew for an entire day, 24 hours, and you had nothing to do with its growth. You didn't nourish it. You didn't create it, as opposed to the Ninevites, who God did create who God did love, who God had a lot to do with, who God had known a lot longer 
than Jonah. And so he concludes by saying, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left in much livestock? And the 120,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left probably is a reference to children. Jonah, you wanted the whole people wiped out. The children had nothing to do with this. Everything that you hate about the Assyrians has nothing to do with those kids or the animals. Probably not a whole lot to do with the older folks or even most of the people. In a society that's wicked, it's a small percentage of the people that's influencing the majority of the people. And Jonah's not seeing that. And God's trying to implore to him how much he loves them. If they're the most wicked people of all time, God loves them. Someone has asked me, you know, it ends right here. What happens to Jonah? And the answer is, we don't know. And the answer is, do you know who the author of the book of Jonah is? Probably Jonah, which is fascinating because he doesn't record anything else after this. Almost as if he doesn't want to tell us what happens next in his heart because that's not the point. That's not the point of the story. That's not the take home of the story, and he doesn't want it to be about him. Maybe a few minutes as we wrap up this morning, I want to talk to you about a couple things. The whole story of Jonah, in a way, reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. Remember the story, right? The father has two sons. The younger son comes to his dad and says, I want my inheritance now. And so he goes and he gives him his inheritance, and that son, the younger son, goes out and he spends that inheritance foolishly. Debauchery. I mean, he just wastes it away with terrible kinds of choices and on his buddies and lives it up. He parties hard until he runs out of money. And then the Bible tells us there was a famine in the land and tough times do come, right? And so he goes and he has to get a job. He gets a job feeding pigs. Now, you know, if a Jewish boy in that day gets a job feeding pigs, that means there was no work anywhere to be found. He's so poor, he's so hungry, he begins to long for the very food that he's feeding the pigs. And in a moment of just clarity, he takes a step back and he goes, man, I had it pretty good actually growing up in my father's house. Even the servants ate well there in my father's house. And so he begins to go back. He starts to think about what he's going to say to his dad when he arrives. You know what I'll tell him? I'll tell him, I'm not even worthy to be your son. I'll take just being your servant. He probably spent more time working on what he was going to say than Jonah did to the Ninevites. He's practicing his speech. He'd never have to give it. Because you know the story, right? On that road, as he's approaching the home, the father goes running out to meet him. It's the only place in Scripture where we see a picture of God the Father running. Running out to meet his son that was once in rebellion and is now coming home. And so what does he do? He falls on him, he kisses him, he puts a robe around him, the robe of righteousness, puts a ring on his finger, the crown of righteousness. He gives him sandals on his feet. They kill a fatted calf that would have been reserved for a celebration 
a big celebration. And that's what they did. They had a big celebration. And everybody's happy except one person. The older brother who was in the field. The faithful one all those years. He's faithful. He comes in. He wants to know what this is all about. And when he's told, he refuses to go to the celebration. And the father's got to come out of the celebration to console the older brother. And it's almost like that's what God's telling us here, that in a sense, that God is being interrupted in the celebration of the Ninevites. You know, the Bible says that when one person comes to repentance, there's a party in heaven. All of the angels celebrate. All of heaven celebrates. Not one person out of seven billion on this planet comes to Jesus Christ without there being a celebration. It doesn't get past God that anyone comes to repentance. It doesn't get past all of heaven. And there's a celebration. Here's a picture of this. The older brother's bummed, and the father's got to go out and console the older brother. And he says, look, all I have is yours. But it is right for us to celebrate because your brother was dead. And now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. And so in some ways, maybe the story of the prodigal son should be referred to as the prodigal sons, plural, in a way. Because the older son, in a way, is just as guilty. And the older son is a picture of Jonah, not the younger. You think right away, oh yeah, Jonah comes back and God forgives him, that's Jonah. No, really, he's a picture of the older brother who's bummed that God's doing a mighty work, but he's worried about his plant. That's what he's upset about in contrast. Now, this story is by purpose, I believe, extreme. It's not an exaggeration. It's true historically. But it is extreme on purpose in order that God would be able to illustrate something very, very important to you and to me. And that is this. And please try as best as you can. You look at Jonah and you think how foolish for a prophet who knew this much about God to be bummed that God would do such a thing as to save a bunch of people. And here he is, all he can think about is his little plant that he barely even know that's not eternal, it's just temporal. And yet, Jonah is a picture of you and me. Because we have our plants. We have these things in our life, our stuff, anything temporal, all of us. All of us have stuff that we get frustrated about that is temporal. The remote control doesn't work on the TV. The dishwasher, this is me, not you. The dishwasher doesn't work. No, really, if the dishwasher doesn't work, I call the home warranty people. They come out and say, this isn't gonna be covered in the home warranty, so it's an extra 200 bucks. I'm frustrated. Post it on Facebook. Let everyone know how frustrated I am. And that's what we do, losing sight of the fact of the priority of our lives as Christians. We get hung up in our little plants, in things. Go home and watch TV today. Listen, the pastor's telling you to go home and watch TV today. But as you do, you'll see commercial after commercial offering product after product that you do not need. That is marketed to people in America because we have an abundance while literally there are 100 million children in this world that are homeless. 
Every point, one million children die every year of malnutrition. I had a friend yesterday send me a video. This is just a video of a small segment of this world in the Republic of Zambia in South Africa, where every day 1,600 children die from stomach-related issues because they do not have clean water. And yet, we're concerned about our plants and our temporal kind of stuff. I'm not hating on things or wealth or any of that kind of thing this morning. You know I don't. I'm just saying perspective is important. How easy it is for us to get frustrated by little things when children, when our coworkers, when our neighbors, when our family members are one breath away from slipping into a Christless eternity. And we're hung up on our plants. And so what does God do? He literally puts his heart on display here in the book of Jonah. His heart for the lost. Because in reality, and maybe you're already ahead of me on this, in reality, the book of Jonah is not about a fish. It's not about the sailors. It's not even about the Ninevites. Those are extras in the story. It's not even about Jonah. The book of Jonah, like the rest of the Bible, is about God's great heart for the lost. And every time you read the book of Jonah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read the book of Jonah, and afterwards I want you to ask, do I know more about Jonah, having read Jonah, or do I know more about God? Because we are living among the same kind of people Jonah was, in the same kinds of times that Jonah was. And so God, he has this tremendous love for the lost that he constantly has to remind you and I about. There needs to be repentance, but he loves those people. And our God is a missionary God. He absolutely is. And he's moving all around the world. And we can get hung up in our little place, building our little shelters, kind of hanging to ourselves in our little club, not thinking about what God wants to do and how much God loves this whole world. It's easy to do. It's easy to get hung up in that kind of thing and forget God's great heart for the lost. God has such a heart, he wants to align our hearts with his in reaching the lost. And Jesus said then, and I wrap up with this, Jesus said, listen, you keep saying, still four months, then comes the harvest. But he said, I'm telling you, the harvest is white now. Don't keep saying that. The harvest is white now. But the laborers are few. You see, God's great problem is that he's chosen to work through people to reach the lost. And so Jonah, like you and like me sometimes, we're either distracted by our plants we don't want to do what God's asked us to do. We're afraid to step out in faith. And so he is enabled to reach some of those people the way that he would like to through an obedient worker, an obedient laborer. What would happen? What would happen if every single one of us this morning 
decided that we were going to make a covenant with God. Every single one of us decided we were going to make a covenant with God. Lord, if you would just speak to me from your throne in heaven to my heart concerning anything that you want me to do it, I will do it every single time. Every single time. Meaning, if you tell me to go talk to that person, or you tell me to send that person an email, or a Facebook message, or a text, or call that person, encourage that person, walk across the aisle. I'm not talking about being obnoxious and stopping everyone in your path. I'm talking about being led by the Spirit to do exactly, nothing more, nothing less, than what he's asked you to do, what would happen in the city of Capitola. I tell you what I think would happen. What would happen is something that people could only attribute to the fact that God was involved and he was moving in that. God has a great, great, great love for people, some of whom we've written off. And we're still here, which means he's not done working yet. And we need to be reminded this morning again of that tremendous heart. They're not our enemies, folks. They are the people he created, and he makes no delight in their death. He wants them saved, and we need that encouragement. We need to be reminded of that. We cannot become calloused to an unsaved world. Lord, we thank you. Praise you, God, for this reminder, Lord, that this is what our commission is, and it is not optional. It is, again, as we studied with the men on Wednesday night, it comes direct from headquarters. Our commission to go throughout the world. We're not all called to be missionaries. We're not all called to be teachers. We're not all called to be ministry leaders, but we're all called to be faithful to what it is that you would have us do. And Lord, that's our heart. And God, please align our hearts again this morning with yours. Lord, we glorify your name for the salvation that you've given us, but we don't want to keep that to ourselves. Lord, I don't believe anyone here is inherently selfish. Not like that, not like to that extreme. We are selfish, but not maybe like Jonah was, but we are selfish in that we get caught up in ourselves. And God, I just thank you for sort of nudging us in that this morning, just reminding us that we are a little bit this way. We are a picture of him and of Jonah and how we can get caught up in our own deal and miss out on the big picture. We can be saved and born again and we can miss out on what you would have us do. And so Lord, even now, just align our hearts again. You do this every time we come and meet with you, every time someone prays, you just align our hearts with yours. Do that again. This morning we pray, I pray on behalf of everybody here who feels the same way, Lord. Align my heart with yours once again, in Jesus' name.